when I would get feedback, I learned early on what to take on to make sure that I show up better and I'm impactful in whatever work that I'm doing, but also how do I not internalize what's not mine? Welcome to Working Your Way, the podcast dedicated to unraveling the journey of being authentic in the workplace. I'm your host, Sandhya Sadakar, and my guest today is Jen Casimiro. She's currently the head of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Profit, a growth and transformation consulting firm. She's had over 10 years in leadership development and inclusion and belonging work. Jen is also a five foot tall Filipina force of nature, a wife and a mother. And in this episode, she goes deep into how she's explored her identity through the lens of race and gender and based on important life experiences and her upbringing. We talk a lot about navigating strength and power in the workplace, the feedback that she's gotten along the way, and how she's been intentional in applying it based on how she wants to show up as a leader. She's balancing bringing her strength into the room, but also learning how to be effective in moving the work forward, even when there's resistance. I'm so excited to share this conversation with you. Welcome to Working Your Way, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to share space with you and share a little bit about my story. Yeah, I cannot wait to dig in. I feel like we're going to spend a good amount of time talking about identity and your own story and learning yourself. Um, Where I want to start is asking you, have there been moments in your career or your professional life in general where you feel like you haven't been able to fully bring yourself to work? Yes. I mean, I feel like my career has been a journey of one trying to figure out what it means to bring my authentic self into a workplace setting to then be able to say, okay, I have or I haven't done that. I think and that definition of itself of like what it means to bring my authentic self to the workplace has shifted over time. So I think, and the context that I'm within, I think early on in my career, I was working in people of color owned organizations, was surrounded with community folks and folks of color. And so in those spaces and seeing different ways of being gave me permission to, to be myself, to feel like I wasn't acting out someone else. But I think when those contexts changed, then that safety and that permission to bring myself into the workforce changed. I think some people say, oh, as you get older, you grow in your career, you get more comfortable being your authentic self. And I think for me, it's more about the context that I'm in because it was early in my career. I felt really comfortable bringing my authentic self. And as I you know, moved contexts and institutions, that's where that started to change and that started to shift. I mean, it really speaks to representation, right? And for someone who is a DEI professional, you understand all of the weight and importance that visibility to people like you or permission to be a different way can be for people. And so I'm curious, in those organizations where you felt like 
the context maybe didn't allow for you to feel like you could fully be your authentic self. What were some of the things that you noticed? How did that feel in those environments? Yeah, I think the first things that I started to notice was how I was feeling and what felt like it was pressuring me or it was felt confined that I couldn't bring my authentic self. And it actually speaks a lot to why I entered into the career that I did around DEI, because what I started to learn was that it wasn't necessarily like individual people who were trying to limit the ways that I could show up at work. I think, of course, there are those, there are those people, but oftentimes it was like the system that we were operating within. And so in addition to like representation, it was that people operated within like a, like a hegemonic way of like doing things and how they showed up and then their leadership. And so when I showed up, And my leadership was different and how I talked was different and my values and how I lived out my values in a workplace were different. It triggers people, whether that was conscious for them or not. And I could see that because of my career, um, both in DEI, but also in leadership development, I could see the triggers that were happening for them that they themselves couldn't see. Mm. And so what I was recognizing was that, okay, and I learned this early, early, you know, as a young woman, not even in my like in my work in workplace or in my career, but just like as a young woman of color who has confidence and strength in my voice and knows that power in my voice, there's something in that that makes other people uncomfortable mm-hmm. because we're socialized <laughs> yeah. to not see that. We're socialized to not kind of value that. We're socialized to value kind of like straight white men in their power. And like, we're comfortable with that. And so throughout my career, when I got older and I then see these different contexts, it's when those people on the other end were uncomfortable with that power in my voice. Um, And it sometimes, it's sometimes like folks who are different than me, but sometimes it's folks who are like, who are within an institution for so long that they're like, that's just not how it is here. Tone it down. That's where like the tone policing comes in, right? Um, So I think that's also why, you know, I try to really think about how do I break down these systems so that we can be more inclusive of different ways of being. Obviously, that has a lot to do with how I myself am feeling and how I've experienced the workplace. Yeah, there's really kind of two things that you're talking about. One is, okay, we have this system. And I want to break that down a little bit for folks that don't work in this yeah. space. And like, what does that really mean to be in a system that doesn't maybe welcome your authenticity? But there's also this, uh, you know, maybe having multiple different standards for different people within that system. As you mentioned, right. it's okay for one person to speak confidently and assertively about their ideas, and it's not really received the same way. And so I'm curious, are those two different things or are they one and the same? I wouldn't say that they're completely two different things. I think that they're, they are, they're related because the thing about workplaces is that 
the workplace operates within institutions that operates within society. And so there's no kind of separating out what people are, have been socialized to understand around leadership or power or any of those things outside of the context of how they grew up. I think sometimes we're like, well, like that's, you know, I believe that in my personal life, but I like, this is how I show up in work. Right. Um, but sometimes we unconsciously don't understand that, like the, the little things that we've internalized as we have grown up in society and as we take in information from society does impact how we show up in the workplace. And so when it comes to um, moments where, let's say we have, you know, John Doe and Jane Doe and John Doe happens to be a straight white man and he's in front of a client and he's like speaking confidently. Everyone is like, yes, great job. But when Jane Doe does it, who happens to be a woman of color and she's speaking with confidence and she has strength in her voice, sometimes the feedback is like, oh, well, like maybe you should tone it down or you came off a little too aggressive. That's where like the gendered and the racialized feedback come into play. It's the people sometimes giving that feedback. There, there are the people who are like trying to be um rude and you know gendered about the feedback but there are other people who are thinking that they're doing a service to Jane Doe because they haven't worked through oh I have an internalized bias against women women of color you know any of those things so I do think it's they're related because oftentimes in the workforce a lot of folks you can whether you just entered the workforce or you've been in the workforce for 50 years, we all are coming in with our own socialized understandings of how other people should operate. And that in itself informs how we believe we're supposed to operate and how much are we willing to risk that, right? Because I think there's also, once you understand that's how this operates, like, not only do individuals, but the system is also allowing and enabling that. So the system being, let's say, like uh, um, performance evaluations, right? So in addition to like individuals giving feedback, you know, in an institution, you could find that, you know, white men are moving at a faster rate than any other group of people. And so then you start to try and understand what's going on there. So when I say system, I'm thinking about like there's the personal and the interpersonal, but the system is what are the things around that are enabling kind of certain behaviors to happen and that um, aren't fighting or mitigating bias and fighting against those systems. And so I think it's really hard when people say, well, like I, I'm, I'm just doing a good job. Like I'm doing my best. We have to elevate that to say like, okay, well, what's happening then across the system? Because then people think it's just individual kind of problems when it's not, it's structural. It's almost always structural, but then we create solutions for individuals rather than creating solutions for like structural things, even just around things like, like leadership, our expectations of leadership. If we continue to kind of solves or make solutions just on like, well, that you need to do this and you need to do this without kind of taking a step back and saying, okay, what are the patterns that are happening 
specifically when it comes to like marginalized folks, that's when we're able to create solutions that meet all of those individual needs. It's impossible to talk about inequity without discussing the systems perpetuating it and the people who might be holding up those systems by just not questioning them. Now, this is no knock on HR professionals, but there's one study that I read that says 51% of HR professionals say executive presence is hard to define, but 81% say, oh, they know it when they see it. My brain exploded when I read that for the first time. When you combine that with everything that we know about unconscious bias, I find this highly problematic. This is something I talk about in workshops I do for companies, just how bias plays this huge role in how we view leadership potential. This type of bias is, by definition, based on all of the messages that we pick up unconsciously, and this is the problem. We've internalized messages from media, TV, our cultures, our communities, and not all of this information is what we actually want to believe or what we would choose to believe if we knew that this data is being stored away in our brains. And here's the problem with this data. If you can't name it, if you can't identify exactly what executive presence is or how to get it, it's most certainly coming from bias. And bias is never going to be a good determination of who can lead effectively in an organization. I appreciate going right in there, right? And it's and it is true. And I um, I also loved what you said about sometimes we get feedback that uh, is is biased or frankly um, racist or sexist, and it's because that person is that way. And sometimes we get that feedback because that person is well-intentioned and they think it's going to help us succeed within the context of this system. And so I'm curious, have there ever been times that you can remember when you got feedback that was well-intentioned, but bad feedback? Yes. Yes. Um, I would say most of the time too, it is a ladder. It's a lot of well-intentioned folks who are trying to make whoever they're giving the feedback to successful. And um, I do, there have been many moments. And as someone who started my career in leadership development and started my career in really getting to know myself well, all, all the good things, all the things I need to work on, I learned early on and I had the, really the privilege, you know, in my early 20s to learn what's mine and what's not mine? And how do I understand and how do I read feedback? Because that's where I, you know, I started my career in that. And so that, and I, I give this all as context because when I would get feedback, I learned early on what to take on to make sure that I show up better and I'm impactful in whatever work that I'm doing, but also how do I not internalize what's not mine? And so I have, I remember getting feedback and it was at an institution. I think this was kind of my, maybe my first or second round of getting feedback at this institution. And the feedback was generally great, was a lot of like, you know, around the work that I do around DEI 
and creating community moments and thinking about things equitably and pushing thinking. And so the feedback that I got around my leadership was that um, sometimes I wasn't like welcoming enough, like I didn't welcome people into the work that I was doing and that I was too aggressive and that um, sometimes I needed, to, you know, sometimes I needed to figure out a different way to say things because I would just like kind of scare people off in my work and around DEI. And at this time, I was the only person doing DEI. And so while some might like listen to this and be like, I don't hear anything wrong with that feedback. Um they weren't giving that feedback to like other, like my colleagues, like other people who were, who were men or who were more senior than me. Um, and what I was hearing was a, like a lot of like tone policing and well, you're not going to grow. You're not going to be successful if people are just upset with how you deliver. And my thing was that, well, I take that in. I learn how to like take in all feedback. I truly believe all feedback is is helpful feedback and that it's always telling you something about how you're landing with people so that you can have agency around like, do I want to continue to land like that with people or do I not? Because there are moments where I'm like, I want you to be uncomfortable with how I said that because I need you to hear it versus, oh, I want you to like get along with me. Um and so talking with my manager at, at that point, and she and I had a good relationship after some much needed, you know, our own stuff too around, well, I'm going to take this on because what I'm hearing is that I'm not, you know, my message and like the impact that I'm trying to have is not getting to where it needs to be. But what I'm not going to do is change my tone because my, this is the appropriate tone for the work that we're doing. People want the work that I am doing to feel good. DEI doesn't always feel good. I'm not here to make anyone else feel good about what they're doing. I need them to think critically about what they're doing. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to feel good. Um, And there have been many moments as a rise in my career where I can continue to get, even as a director, get tone police and say, well, you shouldn't say it that way or people are not going to. And, you know, for me early on, it was about, okay, what about that is helpful? What about that do I want to take on? Because I didn't see a lot of examples in several institutions of the type of leader that I wanted to be. And so when people were telling me, well, people aren't going to listen to you and that's not how you should say it. And you're too aggressive. You're too loud. You're too pushy. And I agree with some of that, you know, early on in my career, I learned a lot. I learned how to like create spaces of psychological safety for all different types of people and how that will shift and change based on who's in the room. But I also know that through my presence in my leadership, that gave permission for other folks to be how they wanted to be in ways that I didn't see. And so sometimes the feedback was about figuring out was helpful and sometimes the feedback was that you're doing exactly what you need to be doing because you're making the people who are uncomfortable with certain folks having strength in their power. And so you're doing right by that. Um, 
So I think there there's a lot in feedback and around how to take it in. And I think I'm privileged really and blessed that I learned how to do that early on because otherwise I think I would have really shifted how I would lead now if I internalized a lot of kind of like the gendered and racist and tone policing feedback. I would not show up how I do now if I, if I internalize most of that. Yeah. It's like there are, there are many layers of bias in that feedback that you're getting. And then to add to that, it's about DEI work, which inevitably makes people feel uncomfortable inevitably, inevitably, evokes some shame if it's feedback about how somebody is acting or defensiveness if it's about how the company is treating people. And I love what you said about agency and that process of sorting out the feedback looks like, okay, this is how it landed. Was that my intention? And, you know, matching up intent and impact. And it's not always adjusting impact to the other person's comfort, but it's matching what you want and what's happening. So I think that's like a beautiful distinction. This idea of intent versus impact, this is something I coach leaders on all the time. Typically, it comes into play when a leader's communication style isn't matching how they want to show up. In this instance, it's coming from someone who said, yep, that's exactly how I want to come across. At the end of the day, communication is a two-way street. And so we always should be considering, is how I'm saying this, not just what I'm saying, but how I'm saying this thing, going to allow it to be received? That is effective communication. I say a thing and you could really hear me. As we get back into this conversation, Jen talks about how she reckoned with this as well and where she recognized that she actually did need to adjust her style. Have there been times in your career where you haven't had that safe person or safe people to process with and you adjusted, overcorrected how you showed up and then had to kind of reckon with that later? I've done both. I think... um There have been times where I didn't adjust at all because, and I don't think that was helpful either because I was like, this is who I am. You know, when I was early in my career, I was like, burn it all down. Like none of it works. (laughs) Like all, everyone is wrong, you know? Um, And I would get feedback that like, that's not going to be helpful. And I didn't adjust to the feedback. And what what I was finding was that, because I was like, this is what it means to do this work, to do this work with integrity, to do justice Mm -hmm. to this work Mm -hmm. is like to be loud, to hold the people accountable. Like this isn't it. And what I was finding was that I was moving people to not engage with me at all. And that wasn't helpful. To the work that I was trying to do. I was like, if people don't engage with me at all, then I can't progress this work, right? Because, um, because of fear or because of saying the wrong thing. And early on in my career, I would say, well, like, that's a them problem, you know? Because I was like, this is what this work is. It doesn't feel good. Like, there are people dying, you know? I'm not going to make yeah. you feel good about this. And so 
I learned that in specifically in workplaces, right? I'm not, I'm not a community organizer. Um, I'm not an on the ground activist. And I would never try and say that I am because I think in that it would diminish the folks who are actually doing that work. I am someone who does DEI in institutions and that operates with capitalism in a certain way. And so my, and my job is my vehicle for change. And so what I was realizing through this feedback and not changing was that it was actually doing a disservice to the work and the message and what I was trying to shift and change. I can't change people's behaviors and I can't change an institution if I don't create the psychological safety for not just the folks who are most marginalized, but also the folks who are most privileged, who have never had this conversation. And once I started realizing that and saying, okay, I hear the feedback, I'm not going to necessarily change who I am and the message. And I, I, I'm less concerned about making people uncomfortable, but what I don't want to do is move people to a place where they don't take action at all and they don't engage at all. And so then I think at one point I overcorrected and specifically when I started to rise in my leadership and to get into those like capital L leadership positions where I started to listen more to folks who were in privilege and folks who were in power. And I was like, this doesn't feel right either. I was like creating the conditions for them to feel safe that then in turn was going against what I firmly believe and why I came into school is like, how do I create workplaces that are truly safe for folks who are coming from marginalized identities? And so that's where I also learned, okay. And that came from a lot of trust from the, the folks that were coming from marginalized identities that I worked with around like, hey, like you're a leader now, like you still got us? Like, are we, you know? And so I think for me, that's mm-hmm. an overcorrection because as specifically folks who are coming from marginalized identities, me as a woman of color, as you rise in leadership, it's hard not to be like, oh, I, I'm here, I made it. And so let me just create the safe conditions for myself. And so like, let me just make the folks around me feel good and say what they, you know, cause I made it, I'm good. Um, rather than being like, wait, why did I come here? What are my values? Um, what is my vehicle for change? What change am I trying to enact here? And how do I balance out making folks feel psychologically safe, but uncomfortable in my message and what I'm doing while still being able to serve our most marginalized folks within an institution? Because, and that's where I started to really learn about what's the difference between comfort and safety. Um, yeah. so I think those are kind of examples of where like I overcorrected. I was like, oh, I made it. I'm a leader, leader, quote unquote leader now to places where like, I'm not going to change at all who I am, because if I change how my approach, that means I'm changing who I am. And I, I, you know, over time was able kind of like to separate those two things out. Yeah. I love that. It's like first in the career, it's like, I'm going to be all me and I don't care about anyone else. Right. And then it was like whoa, I'm in the room with all these influential people. Like, how do I f- use this power, fit into this power structure to get things done? And then kind of coming back toward the middle. How do you today 
discern between this is allowing me to build some range in how I show up and how I communicate versus this is going to require me to diminish my identity or do something that fundamentally doesn't feel like me. Yeah. I think related to this, one of the pieces of of advice I give folks, especially folks who are going into DEI and especially folks who are coming from marginalized identities is that part of doing this work and rising in leadership in whatever capacity is that you have to never stop getting to know yourself because we're humans. And so we're not static. We're we're constantly evolving. We have different life stages. Um, we, We are changing and how we are experiencing the world because we're constantly getting input from the world and um, our personal lives and all of that. And so that is an important factor for me because as I continue to get to know myself, which is an ongoing journey, then I'm able to better create the boundaries that I need around this work. Because this work, DEI work, equity work, justice work, it's personal, right? Um, and it's personal for the people that we're doing even that we're working with. And so with that, I also try to be clear about who I am from the get with the people that I'm collaborating with. Um, And it sounds easy, but, you know, I think depending on the context, again, going back to context that you're in, it may feel different. But if once you, as you get to know yourself and if you know yourself well, that's where the power comes within, Because we talk, you know, you can talk about power within, power over, power with, but power within, knowing yourself and knowing your power within enables me to be able to be adaptable to the context that I'm in. Because I know who I am. I know what my values are, no matter what the work, no matter what the context. And so that allows for me to be able to continue to be who I am and show up who, like who, you know, as my most authentic self, because to not show up as my most authentic self is doing a disservice to the the work that I'm, I'm in. Right. Yeah. I, I, this is a great segue because I, I want to talk a little bit about your backstory and your background and your upbringing. You are someone, as we've talked, you know, today in the past, it's like you have a very, solid core of who you are. And so much of that has come from your growing up and having these, I I would call them opportunities, even though they maybe weren't comfortable or great at the time, but like you've had these opportunities in your life to really grapple with identity, whether that's gender identity in your cultural upbringing or um, racial identity and in school and playing basketball. And so like, what, what have those opportunities meant to you? How have they built the person that you are today? Yeah. Um, I'm so just to give some context to the listeners. So I am a uh, third generation uh, Filipina American and I, we've, my family, we have four generations in the Bay Area. 
Um, we, I was born and raised in San Francisco, which is unceded Ohlone land. And it's, it's interesting because to your point, I, w- I was raised in a family of, of matriarchs, like just really strong, powerful women that um, to this day, I am both inspired by a little scared of. Um, <laughs> and so early on, I, you know, my parents fueled kind of like my confidence. And I'm, I'm also a tiny, you know, I was a tiny little girl. I'm five foot now as a grown woman. Um, and why I named that too is because basketball, you named basketball, was a big part of my life as well. I started playing year round since I was 10 um, and up until I graduated college and I went to college and played basketball as well. And a lot of people were like, wow, you're, you don't look like a basketball player. Um, and why I bring that up is because growing up, I had one, like these examples of really strong women, powerful women, like obviously amazing, strong men too, but like that were not threatened by these strong women in my life. Like they Mm -hmm. were just, it was like such a strong relationship between like powerful women and like amazing masculine men that weren't, didn't feel emasculated by powerful women that came from my family. While I was in these spaces, other spaces in society that I was socialized at like, wait, women aren't like that. So whether it was basketball where I'm like, well, like, it's okay if you're not good. Like you should do this instead, like try gymnastics or something like that, which is ironic because gym, I would, I would be so bad at gymnastics um, <laughs> because that is a very hard sport, but um. Or like in school around like how I should operate or how, what I would watch on TV, right? The, the things that I was taking in as a young child around like what it meant to be feminine, to be a woman, to be a strong woman was not, was like, there was cognitive dissonance for me growing up around like, wait, like at home, like my parents are like letting me speak my mind um, feeling my confidence. My dad would like take me to all these basketball stuff where I'm like, you could be good at this. Um, while society was like, you're a small little girl, you know, just be quiet. Like, you know, those, I was internalizing these other ways of like what it meant to be a young woman of color. And so as different opportunities, you spoke of opportunities came up as I was growing up around specifically leadership I really started to play with what that meant for me. And so because of basketball and because I was like a captain and all of those stuff, like I realized like I am like the strap, like the strong, like front of room. I'm comfortable with that. Like I um, am comfortable, like saying things how they are, standing up, all of that. And so it was through sports that I got that confidence as well. But as I moved into my career, Um, And I moved into different places where things like, quote unquote, professionalism come into play. I started to get a cognitive dissonance again, because on one hand, people were like, well, you know, tone it down. You're too aggressive, like back to that feedback. On the other hand, too, in like spaces where I felt safe in and we've had this conversation before with other folks of color 
with leaders of color, I was also hearing the message, well, like, you don't have to be front of room. Like, you don't have to be like the white man. And so then I was getting confused because I was like, on one hand, like, I'm comfortable like in that. I like that leadership style. I feel good in that leadership style. Um, but then I'm being told in spaces that I trust and that I feel safe in that, like, that's a white man's leadership. And so as I grew, I started to really lean into, okay, am I like that? Do I like that leadership style? Because that's a quote unquote white man's leadership style. Or do am I comfortable in that leadership style because I come from a family of matriarchs, of like strong, stand in their power, women. And so, you know, in high school, and this is like where it started to happen. I was like, wait, what's happening? And like in school and stuff like that, that's where I went, had like this identity crisis. I was like, I'm not white. I'm not black. I'm Filipino. I can't act this way. People are saying I act this way, but this is just who I am authentically. And then you get into the questions like, okay, what does it mean that this is authentic? Where is it coming from? And that's why I started my career in DEI and justice work, because I wanted to be able to understand and decouple what do I think is authentic versus what is that internalized from somewhere else? And it's a little bit of both. It's a mixture of both. So I think these different opportunities kind of help me decouple, understand what is authentic versus what is internalized. Listen to how Jen is able to break this down. This is really important. A lot of people have had these types of formative experiences in their lives, not the same as Jen, but likely just as important to their story. There's a gap that exists when we don't really integrate these experiences in understanding how we became who we are today. It's not just about reflecting on your life experiences, but kind of contextualizing what they mean to you and who you are. How did they shape you? What did you come to believe because of them? And are these stories and beliefs still relevant and supportive of where you want to go? I've talked about this when I talk about sometimes we can be unaware of our work styles or our talents because they're so intrinsically tied to us every day. You can't always see the water that you're swimming in. And the same idea applies here. You live those experiences, but processing them, understanding them can sometimes be hard alone in your own pool of lived experience. And so this is where other people maybe can help, uh, whether it's a therapist or a coach or even a friend or just using some kind of structured way to reflect on your life. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. No, I mean, I, I just think it's such an interesting, you know, we, we talk about origin stories of like careers, right? And you were someone who got a message about what women look like and they were strong and then went out into the world and was like, wait, that's not what people are saying. And, you know, even from a racial standpoint of, you know, being a, a small Asian woman on a basketball court, you know, and just people saying, that this isn't for you and, and you yeah. weren't good at it, right? And so it was kind of these, yeah, it was so many mixed messages. 
And the confusion and then kind of coming back around to like that sorting process, right? And it's mm-hmm. like, you, you almost like trained for this your whole life. <laughs> you trained yeah. for how to sort through what is yours, what is not yours, who are you, who, what's coming from somewhere else. And I just think it's really fascinating. And now you can put that to work within organizations. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm blessed. And I like even hearing it back is just from, you know, from what you said is really helpful too, because I think I've had intentional moments in my life where I've done that and can name it now. But I find that a lot of folks of color, a lot of folks who are coming from marginalized identities, they're doing that. Like we're all, a lot of us are already doing that. I had the privilege where I've gotten the tools early on around how to do that intentionally. And so, because, you know, what my work is, is like to help folks who are coming from marginalized identities, not just one, survive and just be themselves at work, but thrive in their workplaces. Because a lot of folks of color, a lot of folks who are coming or, you know, people of the global majority and folks who are coming from marginalized identities, we have to show up, do the work, but also parse out like where our identities come into play. Where does our gender come into play? Like all of that. Where does our race come into play? Right. And so people, I think we all are already doing that. And I think for me, it's about how do I give those folks the tools that I learned around how to do that and do that sorting process intentionally that empowers us rather than makes it feel like we're at a deficit. I mean, it goes back to that solid core too. And, and how do you know yourself well enough to know when something is yours and something is not yours. And you said this from the very start is like, um, you know, being authentic is about knowing yourself and, and that having that kind of foundation first, but also understanding that's changing over time and, we're evolving and the world is evolving. The context is changing while we're also changing as humans. What are some of the, the ways that you've come to come back to yourself over time or ways that you kind of recalibrate? Where am I today? Who am I today? Yeah. I think there's like the very obvious moments of like life stages and life changes. Um, Mm. So one for me, becoming a mom was a big moment around like what it like I have to come back to myself because now this is changing everything about who I thought I was and who I actually am. For example, I was talking I I was talking to a girlfriend about this who's also doing this work, who was also a mom and that my story and my leadership style, which we've talked about now, is that like I'm very like direct, I'm friend, I'm in your face. I'm going to tell you how it is. Um, and there was something that over time, because I started that story, you know, when I was young and playing basketball and all of that stuff around like strength is like being in front of the room and fighting and fighting for what's right. That I started, you know, to believe that like, that was me, that was authentically me. And so when I'm not that I'm not being myself, mm. when I became a mom, I started to really think about like what soft strength looked like because to me, strength looked like fighting 
in front of the room. And that's what I had to do early on in my career. It was a lot of fighting. It was a lot of convincing. Um, and now as a mom, but also someone who's in a leadership capacity, I don't have to fight anymore. And um, so I started, I had to come back to myself on your question around what does strength look like now for me? Because strength earlier on in my career had to look like that because of where I wasn't at in life, because of the tools I had, because of the resources that I had, um, and because that's what was needed. People needed me to fight. And I was, I was comfortable with that. I was ready for that. But now I'm not fighting. So what does strength look like? And there was something about like softness that I didn't really lean into earlier in my career that I'm now leaning into now around what does soft strength look like? And I had to really, it seems like something simple, but I had to really lean into that because I have internalized stuff around softness is weakness. Mm -hmm. And so then I had to decouple, okay, softness isn't weakness. What is soft strength for me as a mom, you know, um, as someone who's raising a little boy, um, a little Filipino boy, or like, what does softness look like for him? What does softness look like for the people that I work with that is also holding the accountability into that and that what does strength look like? So I think though that was a huge moment for me around like what I deemed as my authentic leadership around strength had to change because of who I was and who I was going to be. Building in even just these moments of reflection of, wow, what just happened there? I think that's, it's incredibly valuable. And I love that becoming a mom has been such a, a catalyst for change and how you've negotiated with yourself of, of what does strength look like. And I'm curious, when you talk about softness, when you talk about vulnerability and a new way of leading, it sounds like the catalyst came from, you know, this big life stage of becoming a mother is that stuff you're bringing into the workplace now. And what does that look like? Yeah. Yeah. Especially in this work, I think becoming a mom, it's, it wasn't just about like what I was bringing into the workplace, but also what I was bringing home mm. because without my little one, I, I could bring stuff home. I could, I had the time, I had the time to parse out like what was going on and all of that. As a mom, I don't have that time anymore. I can't bring that stuff. I can't project my pains, my triggers, my sorrows onto my little one because he is now in a stage where like we are talking about how we're socialized in those early days and the information that we're getting at home and the information that we're getting outside of home impacts how we show up today. And so I'm very aware that I'm now doing that for another human being. And so how in addition to like, what am I bringing into the workplace, but what am I bringing home and why softness came up is because over time too, I also learned like, what does doing this work with love mean? Mm. Um, because I, 
I think oftentimes people think that like love is just this like fluffy thing, but it really in this work, you have to do it with love and you have to, you have to believe and hope that there's a better world and there's a better way of being and doing things. And to get there and to do that in community and to do that in solidarity with other folks, you can't get there solely with fighting, with pushing. And so I started to really think about, and and that's still very much in my toolbox. Like that's very much still who I am. (laughs) But the vulnerability, the love and the softness was really about me also learning about what did it mean for me to do that for myself because I did not have that love, softness, vulnerability with myself. And also the way that it moves the work. You know, there's different, there's different roles, social roles that we all have in doing any equity justice work. And mine have shifted over time. I was very much and still very much am like the challenger. Like I'm gonna, I'm comfortable being the one like to push the, the limits to like tell people how it is, but I'm going to couple that with, with love and with vulnerability and telling my story and doing that in a way that doesn't trigger people into action, but doesn't in a way where I'm like, I'm tapping into our humanity. So let's talk about strength and how this belief that we always have to be strong can show up in so many different ways. We might think, I'm the one who is strong, so I have to be able to handle everything. I can't show any weakness. I have to be impervious. Or I have to protect other people who can't protect themselves. There's a movie that I really love called Encanto. And it's an animated movie, a kid's movie. But I particularly love it because they have these really clear character archetypes. And Luisa, who's one of the sisters is such a good representation of this strength archetype. She's the one that literally shoulders all the heavy things for her family, for the whole village. And when things start to fall apart with the family's powers, she starts to question, who am I if I can't do these things for other people? Who am I if I'm not strong and I can't bear the weight? And so many of us deal with these types of existential challenges and maybe less literal ways, but it's about if I've formed a belief that my value, that my worthiness lies in being able to handle everything all the time, how would I not have a crisis of identity if I have to ask for help? And this requires challenging deeply held beliefs and beliefs that may have actually really helped you navigate tough times in your life. There may have been a moment where you had to hold it all together, and that was a survival mechanism. But as you come out of these experiences, I would challenge you to really think about, if you identify with this really strongly, what does strength really look like for you? Is it never asking for help? Is it truly admitting fault or letting people see your mistakes or failures? And... Is that truly strength to you? We go on to talk more about this and what it means to ask for help. So let's rejoin the conversation. I love what you said about 
I still have that sword and and the the loud voice when needed. Those are in my toolbox and I can call on them. And now leaning into a new era of your leadership, right? And softness and vulnerability. And you mentioned community. Um, and so I'm curious, what are the new tools and resources that you have in your toolbox as you embrace softness, as you embrace community, as you embrace vulnerability? What does that look like for you? Knowing myself really well means that I know when I need to ask for help and that asking for help isn't weakness, isn't, isn't asking for help doesn't mean that I myself am not competent in something. And I really had to like lean in and learn about that because that's where I started to lean more into how do I lean into my community? Because before I was like, I have to just create that for everyone else. And, and I really had to learn that like, I myself am human and I'm operating within this system. And so I can ask for help. And so how do I do that? How do I ask for help? Which to this day, I'm still trying to figure out because people are like, what do you need? I'm like, I have no idea. Because one of my triggers is competency. So if there's ever a moment that like, I feel like someone's questioning my competency or I'm giving them a reason to question my competency. So I'm still working through that. Um, So learning how to ask for help. I think the the other tool that I learned and I'm, you know, is is being able to communicate well and specifically communicate trade-offs well. And this is very tactical, but I think specifically for women of color too, um, around there's a lot of biases around like what how we should operate, but also like what are the tasks that we do outside of our day job? Um, what are the expectations? And so I think I associate this with softness too, because I think before I would have been like, I just can't do that. Like above my pay grade, like that, that's like how, you know, young Jen or internal Jen sometimes even says that. Um, but I think through softness, I'm able to better communicate clarity, um, through softness, um, and through vulnerability, I'm better able to be like, well, I can't like hear the trade. I can't do that because of X, Y, Z, but I can do this. And that still allows me to like step into an abundance mindset too. I think the society that we're in, capitalism, white supremacy, all of those things wants us to have a scarcity mindset so that we don't tap into community and that we don't tap into ourselves and um, the resources that we have around us. And so I think through the softness, I'm able to better tap into an abundance mindset because I'm more open. I think early in my career, it was like, um, protect yourself. And so by protecting myself meant that I couldn't be open because people would know things about me that I didn't want them to know. As I got older through softness, I was able to be more open while still being very clear about my boundaries so that I could better communicate not just my needs, but like the needs that I needed in order to do this work. Yeah. I love how you, you kind of said without saying it, it's like asking for help can be in and of itself an act of rebellion. 
it can be yeah. going against the the messages that we get about we have to do everything um, ourselves and work harder and, you know, protect ourselves. Um, as you're leaning into asking for help more often, you mentioned, you know, really kind of landing that message internally with yourself of like asking for help does not mean you're weak and does not mean you're not competent or capable of doing the job. So what are some of the other things that asking for help can mean about you? Yeah. One, I think asking for help means that I, it's not about me. It's about the community and what I'm trying to achieve and the impact that I'm trying to have. I think when I, when you get into the space around asking for help is weakness, you're making it about yourself. And so the work that I'm trying to do is in service of marginalized communities, is in service of creating more equitable institutions, more equitable systems, more, you know, in hopes that it leans towards equitable society. And that's all with community. And so if I stay in the place of ask, you know, not asking for help because I'm worried about something about myself, I'm doing a disservice to this work. And so asking for help means that I'm doing justice to this work because I also don't know all of the things. Yeah. Like there's no place, especially in DEI, there's like no place of arrival where like you are now a DEI expert. Like there, there's no such thing because DEI work is human work. And we're all, it's very complex, but not complex to a point where we can act on it. And so you need help. We need different people in the room to do it. So I think asking for help is actually doing the work. It's not the opposite. I think asking for help also opens up to like what you were saying, a rebellion, but it opens up new structures and ways of how we can operate within the workforce, right? I think there's a lot of things that have to be around, here's how you do things in competency and What's your expertise and where are you at in terms of like your learning or fluency or your mastery of something? Um, asking for help actually shows that you have a higher understanding of mastery of something because you're understanding where you're at too. And also how do you get to, again, that collective thing that you're working towards, right? I think it opens up to more honest um, places that we're at. I think when we don't ask for help because a lot of us have been conditioned, don't ask for help because it equals this, it creates inefficiency, truthfully, yeah. right? And we get into these places where we're performing because we need to be seen as X, Y, Z. Um, and I think when, when people, more people ask for help, then we change the narrative around what asking for help means. Um, and we change the safety around it, around asking for help. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, the collective, you know, <clears throat> having that mastery means knowing what you don't know <laughs> and where collective intelligence um, or other people's lived experience or other people's capabilities are going to make a solution better. 
Awesome. Well, I want to wrap us up here and just really thank you for sharing about your story, sharing your wisdom about how you navigate uh, what's yours and what's not yours and how you've come to be the person that you are. I think it's inspiring always to see people who have that really solid core of this is me and know that I'm still growing and evolving. And so um, there's certainly impact beyond even what you know of just you showing up that way and sharing. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the space to, to be able to share and have a conversation with you about that. In this episode, Jen shared her journey of really claiming these different parts of her identity and calibrating how am I showing up versus how do I want to show up and later how do I need to show up in order to be truly effective, to be collaborative, or to be able to get my point heard or get my objective met? We talked about learning how to filter feedback for yourself and asking, is my intent matching my impact? If you're an ally, which we all have the opportunity to be an ally for someone in some room where we may have more privilege, How can you question your own biases, especially when delivering feedback or coaching or mentoring someone? A lot of times when we mentor people, we're giving them advice to help them navigate the company where we work. And sometimes that advice is how they can better fit into the box. And I'd encourage you to question, like, is this actually helping them? How often are you stopping to say, This is how I navigated this company or this system, but that system's actually kind of messed up and I want to be a part of changing it. If you're interested in doing this work, but you're not sure where to start, I'm going to link just one article. There are so many out there, but I like this one because it's a really great case study of a company that explored all the ways bias was showing up in their performance evaluations. And I especially encourage those of you who are in positions of power within companies to read it and to look at your company's systems and processes around how do we evaluate leadership and potential? And are those things rife with biased criteria? And last, we talked about strength and what it means to ask for help. If you related to this part of the conversation, I'd encourage you to reflect a little. What are you making it mean about you if you can't do it all? And what could you accomplish that's far greater with the help of others? And what could get done then? And maybe this weekend, go give Encanto a watch. Thanks so much for listening to Working Your Way. Make sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. You can also check out all of our episodes, show notes, additional resources, and more at selfatwork.com forward slash podcast.